Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, and welcome to episode 11. Our latest podcast episode features Mike Avery's conversation with Dr. Michael Murphy of Loyola University of Chicago. After appreciating the breathtaking views of Dr. Murphy's office, the two ventured into such topics as literature and theology, the problem of poverty tourism, and the significance of the Catholic imagination. They also talked at length about Dr. Murphy's journey through different parts of California, the life-giving service of a high school teacher, and his love for Jesuit education. As always, you can leave us comments here on the blog or on iTunes, and thank you so much for listening. Welcome to another Daily Theology Podcast. Beautiful Wednesday, finally getting some summer in Chicago. Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Murphy, who's Director of Catholic Studies at Loyola University of Chicago, as well as Coordinator for Research at the Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage Center. That's a a mouthful. That's a mouthful, (laughs) Mike. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. One question I always like to ask is, do you listen to any podcast yourself? That's good. Uh, good question. You know, I I don't know if they're podcasts per se. First of all, thanks for having me on. It's nice. It's nice to be here. Nice to see you. It is so nice outside, and we're inside, but we're going to grin and bear it. But um, no, I I uh, I think they're not podcasts per se. Although they're probably morphing as the as the media terrain changes. But I like I, I will listen to a lot of NPR radio programs weekly. I'll kind of capture them on my I'm in a podcast type way. I do like The Moth quite a lot, which yeah. is, that's a great, and I like Selected Shorts. Wait, wait, don't tell me. They're not, those aren't classic podcasts, but, you know, I hear them on the run. And I like a lot of things that the Canadian broadcast company does. CBC does some great programming. Fantastic. So one of the first things we like to do to lead off the podcast as well as the interview is, what was the path that led you to theology? It was a crooked path, my friends. Uh, no, it was a <laughs> the old saying that... Uh, God draws straight with crooked lines. Maybe there's some of that in my my past. I um, encountered, I went to a great books program as an undergraduate at the University of San Francisco, and it was kind of a really, it was a kind of a culture warrior place. But in that experience, almost the eye of the storm, the academics were were superb. And I had a couple of professors, there was one in particular whose class in the 20th century Catholic literary revival kind of changed my life. So I began reading authors I had no idea ever really existed, and that experience with those authors changed my my world. What do you mean by cultural warrior? You mentioned that before. Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of theology and life in the church last maybe 40 years has been described by culture wars, you know. The famous book by James Davison Hunter in the 80s kind of captured that. But a lot of, you know, know, theology can be very political, as we know, and you know, um, a lot of the political discourse in this country, it's, it's, it's almost like you line up first in a political camp, then you kind of line up second in a theological camp. And I think that was happening when I was an undergraduate, and I think it still happens today. You said that, that you this course had kind of invigorated you towards theology, and yet you were doing literature at the time. Right. Can you explain how maybe there's a dynamic of the two? Yes. I don't think I was totally surprised. Cause I, you know, you always felt, I mean, as a reader growing up, I always loved to read, but think you're always reading for the big ideas and then kind of got a class where the big ideas in the literary sense were kind of navigated through a lens of theology and philosophy i mean i was i was blown away by something i felt instinctually then to have it articulated so well you're thinking ah this is this is it so 
uh, then starting to learn about theorists who kind of worked in that field, then I, you know, um, that's a whole other chapter when I began to learn about these theorists and that kind of explains my, my move toward this career, I guess. Right. Yeah. You, for your master's, you, you stayed at the uh, University of San Francisco Jesuit School and you did your thesis on Flannery O'Connor. Well, I, I mean, a little small correction there. I, I was able to take my, my professor from USF and bring him over to San Francisco State where I studied, oh, okay. which was great. I had a great team there at uh, Michael Krasny, who's a, a kind of a public figure in San Francisco. He was a, a great professor who also was a radio host for the local NPR station in San Francisco. He's kind of a cultural critic. And then my professor, uh, Erasmo Leva Maricacas, who is now a priest at the Trappist in Spencer, Massachusetts. What a what an amazing kind of uh, experience. Michael Krasny, a secular Jew, and, and Erasmo Leva, a Catholic. I had the Judeo-Christian literary experience at SF State, and I worked on Flannery O'Connor with those two scholars at the helm. And I can't tell you what a wonderful experience that was coming, going forward with this kind of theology of literature and arts. Wow. Could you explain, like, how did you bring the, you said you brought him, uh, him over. How did you do that? Well, we just agreed, you know, so I asked the administration, said, can I have my second reader be an out, you know, someone, and so he, yeah, so it wasn't like he changed jobs, but he did, he did visit with our, we had our various consultations and meetings, and Erasmo was most generous to kind of come over and, and help in that way. So before, uh, before undergrad, going back to your earlier years, did you always have a fascination maybe with God or, or, or even with the church? Or was this a much a later occurrence for you? I think the church was, I mean, I always went to church. My family's Catholic. My, um, my, my parents in their different ways have their have very different spirituality, but they're very serious about their faith. And where is home? Uh, I was born in, in San Mateo, but I was raised in Orange County, Fullerton, California. So California. California, I'm a California guy, but my parents are Chicagoans. In fact, uh, I'm here at Loyola. My mom grew up about five minutes from here, and my dad grew up probably six blocks from here. Wow. And half my family went to Loyola. My grandfather went here in 1931, and so it's kind of funny how things work out. I'm back here, so when I got the wow. job yeah. back here. Full circle. Full circle, kind of funny. But I think I grew up kind of nominally Catholic, as a lot of us did, and kind of went through the sacraments. The sacrament of departure, confirmation. I don't think I was a very ardent church person in high school, but I got to college at USF. And again, I had these experiences in the classroom. It, you know, I'm not saying this was an intellectual reconversion, but all of a sudden my, my faith life was amplified by these, by these writers that were speaking my language. One of the things that I always, always think about when you're studying in undergrad and you're trying to choose is do you think your past kind of led you to this in a way? Mm. Like a question I always think about is there, is there something I was subconsciously grappling with mm. that was that caused me to open up, but all of a sudden you read a text or a professor hits you mm. and you're, you're wondering, Oh, mm. you're open to the world ideas. Mm. All of a sudden you have a theological thought and you're in, do you think there was anything that, uh, from your past that kind of opened up that idea? I think I was open. I think, yes, I think, you know, it's almost the, the famous St. Augustine, you know, that uh, God makes us for God. And our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And I think, I think so. I I was receptive. I was open. But I was in need. You know, I was in need of hearing this. So that was my time. And then so my job was to respond to it with courage. You know, because it's a kind of a countercultural career move too. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> uh, it's not a money maker. No, or, uh, no, it's no, you know no, business no. majors are very much yeah. uh, a popular thing now. Right. Uh, and the liberal arts are going going away through and through. Uh, to our shame. I mean, you're, you're going to see the. Um, and we can go a long way on that. But I, I think we're going to see the, the, the price of that about 20 years out when they're not there because this keeps the culture together. The, the liberal arts, the humanities are, are essential. 
I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, so you chose a Jesuit school. Yeah. Was there a reason for that, or was it just close? Or No, it, yeah, it was kind of random. <laughs> the classic in California was you want to go far enough away from home. So there's, there's the big California flip-flop, all the Bay Area kids go down to USC or Loyola Marymount or UCLA and all the Orange County, L.A. kids go up to Stanford or Cal and get in or USF or Santa Clara or something. So that was that. But I liked USF, too, for I was a basketball player, and I loved the fact they had this storied past with their 50s championships team. So there wasn't much more than that. But I also got invited by this great books program that Father Fessio was really kind of an arch-Catholic. Again, this is a very culture warrior person. Right. Good man. Uh, uh, I personally know him. And he's always been a good man, but I don't always agree with him. Anyway, but he was really um, uh, welcoming. And so I didn't really join right away. I waited a year. Then I joined this program, and, I, and I'm always happy I did. I wasn't quite the classic SI Institute person, but I'm happy I went through it. And I learned, and again, the professors were first rate. I think when you think of a Jesuit school, you think of Georgetown, you think of yeah. DC, University of San Francisco kind of gets, I know from someone who has, hasn't really, I've seen it, but I've never, never gone to it. It kind of gets left out. Do you think there's a reason why like it doesn't have maybe the reputation of those other schools or maybe it's, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you have a, a good perception of it. No, it, it, uh, it's, it grows in its own way. So, I mean, now everything's, everything is kind of by design. So they're finding their niche and they're finding their niche in kind of social justice. Their theology is more, is more ethically oriented. So there's that, and they're more looking toward the Pacific Rim as opposed to Europe. So, but at, when I was there, they had their art in San Francisco. I mean, it's very well known in, in the city, and you kind of have connections because of that. Right. But no, it does not have the cachet or credibility of a Georgetown or Boston College. But it is, you know, I think it's coming up. I'm really proud to have gone there. There's some really wonderful things happening. But no, I would say in the West, too, I'm noticing, too, being in the Midwest, not everybody looks to the West too much for, right. for you know, it's kind of a... In the West, people are kind of happy to be on their own, I think, in many ways. But here, they're not really even part of the dialogue sometimes. Right. Yeah. So you went? did you go straight from your undergrad to master's? No, I took a year. I, okay. was, um, I worked at the hotel in Disneyland at the Marriott. <laughs> Could you say something? Of, that sounds amazing. Can uh, you say a little, bit, a little bit of that? Oh, thing? yeah. I mean, I think that kind of gets my, uh, my, my burgeoning media empire started there in, at, uh, in Anaheim. I had a uh, I used to drive a trolley car and had a bell and a microphone and I would drive the I'd drive the tourists to and from the Myriad Hotel and uh, it was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, yeah, I, it's what it's, it's uh, what liberal art, liberal uh, arts majors yeah. get. Well, they offered me a job. They said, "Hey, Mike, we want you in management." You know, so and I Whoa. well, I know they got me like you know to, on the track. So at the end of my year, they were saying I was like, I want to go back to school. I was going to go to law school, right? Wow, and I changed my tune to the last minute there. So I, but they said, Mike, come on in here. We're gonna, you know, you, we're gonna put you on the supervisor track, middle of management. And I'm like, no thanks. They're like, what? Right. So I, I, yeah, I wasn't really. I mean, I, I all respect. I think that was a wonderful. They're a great company in a lot of ways, and I enjoyed it. But that wasn't going to be my life. Um, but then, so law school was in your in your head for a while. Oh so. yeah, yeah, law school. That was the whole goal was law school. So that year I took off. I was I was doing LSAT stuff, and I was into law schools, and I decided not to go at the last minute. What do you, what kind of law did you want to practice? I had no idea. I just wanted. I thought it was going to be cool. You know, I was into big ideas. I was into justice, and then I, I talked to some friends of mine who were working. You know, kind of indentured servitude. Right. And then some younger lawyers, and I just wasn't sure about it. It just all of a sudden didn't seem so cool. So I thought maybe I'll go back and get a master's. It was in 20th century Anglo American literature. So after your master's. Two years, you you don't go straight to PhD. You kind of take a different trajectory, and it's with high school teaching. Yeah, I actually taught eighth grade for one year in the Mission in San Francisco. That was um, that's probably the best year of teaching I ever had. That's wow, because I was needed, and I made no money. The population was poor, poor and and wonderful, and 
truly human and life-giving but they had uh but i was young and i was in san francisco and i thought no i can't do this so i i didn't i did not renew my contract but i learned so much in that one year you, me, you taught english i taught english and social studies for one year Whoa. Do, is there anything that maybe you could take away from from that one year in the sense of being exposed to such poverty? Yeah, it has. You know, and the Jesuit thing too, because it can be kind of bourgeois and middle class. Just a bit. A little bit. Um, and you can do poverty tourism pretty easily. So, What, uh, what do you mean by poverty? Well, you kind of go in there and you do a good deed and you say, oh, well, that's probably there. Those people are so wonderful and they're in such need, but I'm out of here. And so I think I actually did some of that. And so... I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I, have, I haven't reckoned with it really. I have, but I. What I want to say is that I would like to be a person who is not a poverty tourist and who meets people eyeball to eyeball, and can at least walk with people and not come in with any answers. I learned a lot that year, but I don't know how much I've applied it. Quite frankly, well, poverty tourism sounds like a great book title. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard the phrase before. Well, I have a friend. I think it's, it's not even my phrase. It's my colleague here in campus ministry, Susan Harmon, who's wonderful. I should probably interview her. She uses that when they when she's kind of drumming up some interest in our alternative break immersion programs we do here at Loyola, and she's saying watch out for poverty tourism. <laughs> it's a great phrase. It really just, is. I'm, yeah. like, uh, well, I'm with you. I'm always thinking. Do you, do you think in titles all the time? I always think in titles. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Although they can be obviously limited, but yeah, it's really. fun to put the put titles on things. I love it. I just titled my dinner last night with my family. Let's call this no. slumming right. it. Let's call this a cardiac event now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So wait. So not. So you did one year of eighth grade, but then yeah. did you do more high school? I know that. So eighth grade there. Then I wasn't sure what I was doing. And then luckily, the person I worked with at St. Peter's there in San Francisco, she had a friend, and she said, "Well, maybe Mike can." I wasn't sure what I was doing, so she try Mike. Mike. Mike can teach a high school maybe. So I commuted out to the suburbs from the city, and I was in kind of a more you know suburban high school experience which was great and that was at Carondelet High School in, in Concord California and their brother school Del Sal which is the famous football power right uh, and Carondelet's a wonderful place with academics and athletics but I I just started teaching religion and English at Carondelet and is this something that you feel like you would want to do long term at the time or? I just wasn't sure I really loved to teach I didn't know I would love it and I felt really natural at it so I was like this is great but then I had a hunger I wasn't quite done and I felt really I felt driven. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm not quite done with my journey. And I feel like, you know, uh, there's more formal learning to do. So I, I was sort of thinking about doing graduate programs, and I didn't want to really go anywhere. So all of a sudden, I found out that there was a program nearby uh, in Berkeley that was kind of everything I wanted. It was interdisciplinary, and it was there was the GTU. There was Cal. I was able to do my, my literature uh, at Cal, my theology at GTU. And all of a sudden, it was this methodology, and, and I said, this is, gonna, this is great. And I and I applied and I got in, you know. And I wasn't sure about paying for it all. And so the sisters were so generous. They said, well, see if you can go to school in the afternoons. And I was like, that's, that's going to be crazy. That's kind of odd. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll, I'll try. And then it worked out every time. So I was I was a full-time high school teacher. I taught four classes from 8 to noon. And I run over to Berkeley and do my afternoon classes. Wow! I know it was crazy, but I, I don't know how I made it. But it was it was. So you was were doing gift. you were teaching high school in the mornings yeah. and then going to PhD studies in yeah. the afternoon. Yeah, and I guess I, I mean people kind of had that reaction. Like for me, I was 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 getting through, but 
but I, I was an unconventional grad student, you know. <laughs> but I, but I wasn't poor. <laughs> I, I, I was very busy, but I wasn't. But I but I had enough resources. Right. I was really. How did you? What, so yeah. I'm I'm guessing a lot of people who who yeah. listen to this will be like, I, I don't even know if that, how that's possible. Yeah. How did you get through where like you had to plan for all these classes? Yeah. You had to do all this reading and writing. How, what tricks of the trade did you? Did, how did you get through it? I don't know. I think that I had enough years of teaching under my belt to where I didn't give canned lessons, but I was able to have a base in my curriculum. So I was able to. You know, uh, you know, and, and I got to say this too about teaching now. I'm so glad I taught high school because the pedagogy is in place, and I think I learned a lot about efficient pedagogies in those days. So it was tight, but my I had a core plan. I was able to riff uh, where that was needed, and then you know, I, I could laugh. What graduate student does the reading anyway? You know, but <laughs> no. But the truth is, I actually did most of the reading. Right. I would just have to. I would just have to make my evenings mean something, and I just didn't really have a social life. Yeah, 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 that makes sense yeah. in a lot of ways. Wow, that's, I, I've never heard someone teach high school and then do yeah. PhDs. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, that's a great. Thanks course. for saying that. That I guess <laughs> looking back, I guess that's that's something to kind of be proud of. I guess. Thanks for saying so. For your dissertation, you you wrote about Hans Urs von Balthasar. Why why this theologian in general? What what, what uh, captivated you about him? Well, again, it came out of my undergraduate. I first was introduced uh, Balthasar there in in the late eighties with. Erasmo, who, uh, you know, translated Balthazar. So that was, again, that's kind of a grace. And so, and then the way, just the Balthazar's methodology, his, his, his approach, you know, this is, a, this is a cosmopolitan theology that makes deep use of all resources, literary art being chief among them. So it's, but he's also does the theology from the knees. So for me, there was that kind of almost paradoxical mix between really sophisticated, late modern, postmodern, really intellectual, and all Quran, very current, but then also kind of, not pious, but... Um, grounded? Grounded. Grounded, you know, because he's, he's accused of being pious. I think that's just not right. But grounded, right? Focused on what, what the object, right? And I think uh, thinking about daily, daily theology as a, as a media enterprise or as a, as a what your project is, you know, on your, you have the, the fides squarens intellectum, Right, you know, mm-hmm. faith seeking understanding. So, so, yeah. yeah, it's an old, it's an old, but it's new. I mean, and so that's that's Balthazar. That's that's who, that's who he is. It's not some disinterestedness, disinterestedness, disinterested. <laughs> no, I got you. <laughs> right, it, it, it's in the sense You're, that yeah, yeah. He, they, he's not just doing it from an objective standpoint, yeah. or maybe too much of a scientific method towards it. Yeah, he's in a sense doing theology through prayer, through his understanding of who God truly is, yeah. uh, in and in, in a way that can. You said doing theology on your knees is, is yeah. an important one. Where it's maybe in, today we can, you can be theologians at your desk and at work, but you know Pope Francis says we need theologians to be out in the streets, precisely, be, be actually living out their theology. And it seems yeah. like Balthazar really wore that true on his sleeve. Yeah, and I do have a friend that's also who's just worked with uh, Balthazar. He's, he's a classmate of mine. It's just, I have these kind of great classmates. Uh, Adrian Walker who translates even for Pope Benedict. He translated, but Adrian always said, "Don't you want to be swept off your feet, you know, and enter the mystery?" And I think. Yeah, so, so that so that that's what it was, and I wasn't like you know drinking the Kool Aid type thing. It was just like, what is this thing? And so you you really have to enter into it, and 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 so and I and, and I did, you know, and I'm imperfect about it, but I'm not, I'm not sitting back, you know, sterile and clinical. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. So you've written about the Catholic imagination. Mm-hmm. Does that come strictly from Balthazar or from somewhere else? I mean, it was a thing. People were were talking about it. But that you know that really came out again out of the earlier again Erasmus has a lot to do with this. There was people were looking at this even in the 
that 20th century Catholic literary revival was a big deal. Okay. It's not often referred to in the academic sense. People think the Catholic imagination came along in the late 90s. Uh, people were looking at it quite earlier, but you always think of someone like Flannery O'Connor, you know, and you always think of uh, that's that's the kind of apotheosis of it. But no, it's it's an older thing, and it it is a way of figuring uh, the world. You know, it really is. It's a holistic, you know, quite literally uh, imagination. But as kind of a professional field, it did exist earlier. But it, I was kind of moved to enter the conversation that was happening in those late '90s, early 2000s. So Catholic imagination was kind of like your medium, your bridge between theology and perhaps literature. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned it a little bit already, but can you explain a little bit about maybe how Catholic imagination is important? Why does it matter? So you know, there's a cultural Catholicism, a popular Andrew Greeley book, which I think is almost very simplistic, called the Catholic imagination talks about Catholics having an enchanted sense, right? Smells and bells, highly sacramental, lots of mediation. That's all kind of true. But like someone like O'Connor would say, that's almost irrelevant. It's like there's a there's a realism, right? There's a real you know, there's a she called it Christian realism. But things things move through, it's very Thomistic, you know, grace builds on nature. And so there's you know, for O'Connor, someone like O'Connor, she would like beat on matter to find the spirit in it, right? Oh. And so, and not that you're, we're always beating on matter, but that we we make sense of a of a of an incar- incarnational sense, right? And so that wholeness is that God is not an abstraction. God is not merely an idea. God is an incar- incarnated presence among us. So that becomes something that makes my existence and your existence existence worthwhile and meaningful. Our sensory lives have some meaning. So that's what I kind of mean by it. So things things are are articulated and more intelligible when you have a kind of metaphysics that has that holism between what can be imagined, what the phenomenon is, and then what the hard scrabble physical realities are. So that's a first move I would make on that. If anybody's wanting to think about this, there's a lot of good work on it. But I think yeah, let's let's yeah. put some text out there. Well, I mean, my colleague uh, Father Bosco has a great book on Graham Greene's Catholic imagination. And I have a my my book's decent. There's Richard Vladisau writes on these things. I'm trying to think now, you have uh, well Francesca Aaron. We have all these I'm, books. I'm right looking next over to this. here. I'm looking over here. Well, Paul Giles's book is great on American Catholic arts and fictions, but on the imagination. Someone like uh, Francesca Aaron Murphy, who's now at Notre Dame, writes convincingly. She's wonderful, and she has a seminal text, Christ, the Form of Beauty. And I think it goes back to you know all the all the Balthazar books are 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 kind of feed this. But again, all these books are going to have as their as their first matrix the kind of incarnational imagination. It's always about God among us. That kind of that that miracle becomes the, a, a lens about making sense of the of the world, the real world around us. Great. Yeah. So I kind of want to shift a little, gears, yeah. but it's very similar. Why do you think academic theology is important for the Christian life and the mission? I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I, would, I wanted to ask this question. Well, I hope it, I hope it uh, recovers itself. And I'd say many of my colleagues are just, are just doing such great work. But so it's not always not lost. In fact, there's, I think more theologians these days are, are not guilty of the professionalization that's happening maybe in other disciplines. But having said that, there is some of that happening as well. Why is it important? Well, I think a habit of mind is is essential, right? So I think it if we want to be, a, again, use the word holistic, and I love that about Catholic. You know, the HOL in Catholic is seeking after the whole. You know, So if that's really vital, then our, our intellectual life is essential. So we need to be 
have the full integrity of that and have habits of mind that think things through clearly and that uh, go through scrutiny of, of freedom of thought and of engagement and of disputed questions, as the scholastics might say. I don't, you know, to have this half-baked subjective enclaves of agreement are not helping anybody. So a habit of mind, especially, and, and we used to have in this culture, too, this will start to sound like a curmudgeon here in a second, but back in... <laughs> Continue. It wasn't even... Ba- <laughs> please go on. Uh, but back in, you know, not even back in my day, but like, you know, public theology, you know, of a, was an important part of secular life in this country. And, you know, you had public theologians like, you know, like uh, John Courtney Murray and Reinhold and the Niebuhr brothers, Reinhold Niebuhr. And it was part of, you know, they were on the cover of Time. It was part of dialogue. They were, they were credible interlocutors in, in civic discussion, and it was an important resource for under understanding. And you don't have any of that now. So it's really to have that kind of level of thought. You know, someone like David Brooks, for example, it's interesting. I don't always agree with him at all, but he is making this religious turn right now. Uh, I think he's showing us, you know, for all of his, you know, and I think he does a lot of great things, but he's saying, where is the theological maturity here? This is missing from our, from our dialogue. So if we don't have academic theology, we don't have, a, we don't have that, you know. Um, in, in almost in a way, like a, a, a public discourse that brings the secular and the church as well as the maybe academic theology all together. Absolutely. Yeah. Bring I, it. Yeah. <laughs> bring it yeah. on together. Yeah. What is your experience of being a lay theologian? I think that's really an outstanding question i was thinking about that because you know vatican ii 50 50 year mark you know and and if you look at some of the documents and gaudium et spes i think the laity it's saying that now it's time for the laity to get involved in theology before that you know there's no there's no lay theologians happening like before before vatican ii there's not really i mean there's a couple so now now it's a it's there's a lot of lay theologians right right and so i think it changes everything it's a game changer right i mean but it is so what does it mean to me? Well, I hadn't thought about it until in that way until you, your question's perfect. I thought about it maybe a couple of months ago. I don't know what it means. I'm wondering what's going to happen to the church because it, it all kind of is happening at once, right? Vocations are down. There's, there could be a Vatican II thing with that. Who knows? And lay theologians are up. What does it look like, right? And you get questions of power, influence, uh, credibility, reach. You know, you tell me. What do you think? In Vatican II, there's a there's a really fascinating conversations that are happening beyond the council where you have theologians who are giving lectures to all these priests and bishops and, and cardinals there. And it seems like uh, as an ecclesial figure, they had access to those conversations where maybe theolo- lay theologians don't have either a the respect or the access to to go to a bunch of, bunch of bishops and cardinals and have those, you know, those conversations, those lectures in a respectful way. Yeah. And in a way that could benefit each other, not just, you know, theologians saying, I'm smart here, take all my stuff. Exactly. But they could learn what bishops are going through right now, as well as priests. And then lay theologians can, you know, could offer their experience of what, you know, the young generation is going through right now, yeah. what, what they're writing on, what they think, uh, you know, how do, uh, dogma and doctrine, all of that's kind of, dynamically working out right now. Well, I guess we're seeing it, too, the more you, you put it that way. And I think you're right. So that was happening in Vatican II. And I think since that time, we've had the growth of, what, pastoral councils and parishes, right? right. That yeah. was new. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, lay administrators and parishes, that's more. And then, but, but now, like Pope Francis, the bishops, they have their consultation teams. They're not just priests now. Right. And so I think even now with Archbishop Supich, I, I, I'm on a little committee now that's, that my colleague Miguel Diaz is getting together on. Uh, we're looking at the family Synod uh, coming down the line, I think Archbishop Supich just wants some people, lay married people, speaking about it. But you know, theologians and their spouses, right? Right. So that's being that's an invitation from 
from the Archbishop. So that's cool. That's happening. And then even the things with like insights on the environment. Again, lay theologians are, are leading the way there along with the scientists. But I think we're having this dialogue actually. So good. good. This yeah. is good. To, yeah. I, I mean, I I yeah. think it, it's maybe it's like less talked about even yeah. more so now. But that's why I kind of I think I asked a question. Well, do you think like, regular Catholics trust that? Then do you think regular Catholics from, you know, I don't know, maybe just the last couple of decades are they going to trust lay theologians like they trust clerical or religious theologians? I, I mean, I don't I don't I don't know if I can speak for all of Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, that's what I do. There's a lot of like. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the church, which I, which yeah. is a good thing as well. Yeah. But also, like, it's kind of hard to tell wh- how the, all the different corners of the church. Wh- who do people trust? And yeah. I, th- I think it's a good, I think it's a good conversation to have, and I think people trust that yeah. the more voices, the better, in a sense, in that way. Yeah. Like, and having that, like, what Vatican II brought was dialogue and understanding, in a sense, a good compromise in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So that's I, I I think that's something to be seen, and hopefully that will happen. One thing I, I you mentioned, like since we're talking about Vatican II, yeah. you're working at the center here, and you're, you're working on a project. Is, am I right about that with Vatican II? Well, yeah, I, had, well, I don't know if it's going to work out. I had a kind of a book proposal, book project, and I think I was a little too late. It might it might get published, but that's just one of the projects. But the idea was to have Vatican II at fifty. I had all these kind of post conciliar theologians responding to. Who who are the, the theologians? Well, they're people like Julie Hanlon Rubio, uh, uh, Richard Miller at Creighton, Massimo Fagioli up there at St. Thomas, uh, several other younger people, Megan Clark. But uh, you know, I don't. And if you guys are listening, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I owe you an email. I do have. I, but so I've had uh, the whoa book. breaking news on daily. I know <laughs> you heard it here first. Now the, the thing was is that uh, the, the publishing industry is really interesting. So I've tried a couple of publishers and. You know they're saturated, or it doesn't quite fit, or they're not, or the edited volume thing. So when so this is the whole thing about being a professional theologian. Like, what kind of work are you going to do when you do an edited volume? It's less likely to get published than a monograph. And I really that, and I was a little bummed. You know, quite to be honest with you, talked to a couple of colleagues who kind of put me right on this, and then I really talked to some editors, and they just don't like they're not going to sell. The edit, is there a reason for that? Like, why they don't sell? Well, and not everyone is. Some of them do sell, but I think that the editors have to, whatever rubrics or that they use, they have to see. So I think with the Vatican II thing, the um, at fifty, I got great feedback, and I think one publisher held the, the manuscript for too long, hmm. and then said no. So that was not I, I didn't like that. But uh, but the other one said this is excellent, but we just did something like this, or we're we're now going on to the next thing. So I don't know. So I, uh, I, for me, I, I'm learning, you know, the hard the hard realities of life. So, so next time, <laughs> what, what would you do? What would you do differently in terms of, I don't that? know. I don't know if I would do anything differently. I think, I think, I think the one publisher, and again, this is kind of a funny topic. Cause I don't want to name names. No, you don't have to do that. <laughs> the one publisher held it for nine months with positive, positive readings. And they, they said no after nine months. Those are critical nine months for me. Right. Especially with an idea about post conciliar theologians at Vatican II. That's a very time-based thing. Right. So when I asked these authors to join on that, on that project, they were yes, yes, yes. It was it was total enthusiasm. There's a lot of energy, and then I that I didn't, and then I kept on writing. So so it, it, it kind of killed. So it looked good. Then they said no. So then it kind of killed the spirit of it. So I think I'm I'm, I'm in therapy now to kind of <laughs> just kidding. Hopefully, maybe something could work out. You yeah, know, yeah. You no, know you know, there's not, there's no waste. Of, actually, not at all. Because I actually went to a conference and gave a little paper that a lot of my introduction to the book I used for the for the for the paper, and the paper went really well. Fantastic. Yeah. That, so there you go. There That's you a go. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the tricks of the trade you have for, for good theological writing? Oh, 
for maybe for those who are maybe suffering uh, mm. to, to do that in graduate school it's not or, the, yeah. or post post graduation when they're at a job yeah. and they're teaching and maybe they're having problems putting you know words onto the page. What, wow. What, what do you do to, to kind of get yourself to either work through it or get inspired to write? Yeah, Mike, I really appreciate the question, and, and I, um, God, that's a it's a great question. So I. I think, you know, I'm guilty of this, so I have to watch out. But this is where what I've learned. My dissertation with one of my advisors, uh, Al Jelpy. Hello, Al. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but Al always said, oh, Michael, you and your precious prose. Right? So, so I mean, I love sentences. I love crafting sentences. But sometimes I go a little overboard, right? And so right. one thing, A, this is not the last thing you're going to write. Right? Keep on moving. You know? Keeping it simple is better. When, you know, these are complex ideas. The more you can translate them and not simplify to dumb them down, but simplify them to be clear, it's good. You don't have to do flourish. So those things, don't get you, don't get in your own way. Take time, though, to edit, right? Uh, that's where it's at. Spill on the first drafts and then polish. That's a, the short thing I could say right now about writing. Great. Yeah. So I want to move into more teaching now, okay. especially now at Loyola. Why does Loyola uh, University of Chicago, which is a Jesuit school, Catholic school, why do they have a Catholic studies program? Great question. This is a relatively new discipline, if you can believe it. So it's now 20 years or so as a self-conscious discipline. So, you know, there was a visitor out here, Father Joe Kamanchak, who's a great Vatican II oh, scholar. Yeah. yeah. Great guy. And he's, he's really dead solid. And he's like, oh, hey, Mike, how are you? What do you do? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm the director of Catholic Studies. What? Right, we don't, why do we have Catholic Studies? I'm like, he's like, that's what an undergraduate core curriculum is, you know? And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with that. But, you know, you can look back now, the genealogy of, of academics in the late modern days. What happens was, you know, all these Catholic universities, to be relevant in the secular sphere, begin to change their core requirements. So then they lose their identity, Right. So what do you do? You start doing things like Catholic studies. So we're in the middle of figuring this out right now because we're not sure. We know that there's an identity issue at Catholic universities and colleges. It's a very important thing. You know, 40 years of, te- of treating religious studies or theology as merely a social science is left a mark. And so in many ways, these are programs that are trying to recover something, but then what are they trying to recover? What are they trying to, how are they trying to reenter the conversation in integrity? So that's why you have it. They are ours. We have fifty-seven minors. It's, it's pretty popular. It's getting. I mean, we're we're doing well. Great. But we're not. You know, sometimes you have to explain yourself to your other departments, or they have no idea what you, what you do. So the yeah. so Loyola is oh, the, it's Catholicity is on your shoulders as director. Not all. The, not not only me, but <laughs> but the, I work in the center here as well. But yeah, yeah. Some some days it feels like that, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, I'm not the only voice at all. Um, there's lots of great colleagues with whom to collaborate. Uh, there's lots. So and people really are hungry. And they like it. So, but you know, and there's and there's a lot of creativity in this as well. So, great. Yeah. What's the, the what's the requirements for undergrads in terms of theology? Undergraduates for the Catholic studies minor or for the uh, for the core? Just in general, they have to take two, six units of it. Okay. Yeah. So they, not that's still that's still a good amount. Oh it's yeah. Not, it's not not a crazy amount like a three and three or three theology three philosophy. Two no. theology is pretty good. Two theology. Yeah. But I you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Yeah, so I'm 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 glad they do that. I mean, maybe three would be good. Who knows? <laughs> you know, the kid, the students seem to like the theology courses quite a lot. Frank, frankly, I haven't asked this yet to anyone else, but how yeah. would you describe your teaching uh, pedagogy at this at the at the moment here? I have a three and three, so three three per semester. And man, my ped, my pedagogy, I love the question again. These are great. I so I have my little brand, my little uh, motto on my syllabi. I say scholarship, creativity, and community. 
So that's, those are, that's what I try to focus on. So scholarships first, creativity is always involved, and community is always involved because it's a social act. Uh, but I do, so in the classroom, though, I will mix it up. I, I'm always one to lecture a bit, but I know that the attention spans have their life. Uh, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, you're all still tuned in to Daily Theology. <laughs> now, time for a station break. No, no, right. uh, no, one, no one's listening. No, one. <laughs> no, so, but I do like to I lecture, but I, also, I always like to uh, be aware of multiple um, learning styles and so called intelligences. I sometimes, you know, I do small group stuff, I do pairs, I do active walk around the classroom type thing. I'll do some visual stuff. I'll do some video multimedia stuff. Sometimes I bring my guitar in just when things get desperate. Uh, <laughs> every now and again, I'll say a curse word to keep people focused. I, I just feel like that's always like a go-to. If, like if you learn, if you, if you're a theologian, you should learn to play guitar. Yeah. So like when it's a Friday yeah. and people are just not into it, you yeah. just play guitar. You can write songs that like you can find lots of rhymes with Habermas and Harawas and Moltmann and Boltmann and you're really off you go. What are some of the biggest challenges you're, you've kind of, you're, you're facing today when you teach? It might be the attention span. might be the, you know, I have these, my armchair sociology, a little worried about screen oppression and a lot of um, distraction with. Uh, Do you call it screen? Screen op- oppression. oppression. Yeah. What, yeah. You, what is that? Well, you know, people were, like, even right now, I want to reach back and check my, my phone to oh. see what's going you know. That's what I thought you meant, yeah. but I didn't know. Yeah, people, yeah. people cannot keep their mind on, it's not, they, some, some can, but. It's difficult if, you know, you, these habits are all of a sudden, if you don't check your screen every five minutes, it's just not, you don't feel normal. So when how, here, how do you deal with that? Well, I don't, I have a zero policy. I have a zero, uh, uh, there's just, I have, uh, I don't tolerate it. So it's not, there's, uh, you can, you bring your device to my class, but it screens down and there's no phones. So we do use them sometimes for scholarship, creativity and community, but, but you are, uh, and I decided this uh, uh, definitively last year. I said, there's some studies out too. But if you have your screens open, you know, you, not, not only do you have multiple windows open, you're in three different worlds, five different worlds. Then you're, you're the sphere around your seat. You're sucking. You're, you're now a vortex for others. Right. So it's just it's a lose lose, as it were. And I found really when people were there with the screens down, they were way more engaged. It seems to be. I've I've asked this question a couple of times. Yeah. And it seems to be like the zero policy is is this what people are going to do. Yeah. Although we just it, now with the Apple Watch and like all the yeah. things, that's yeah. going to be increasingly more difficult. I know. I always have my standby joke with the phones is like you know no one looks down at their lap and starts laughing. So I know you're on something. So don't you know now it's like no one looks at their wrist and starts laughing. But you know, uh, <laughs> continue to evolve. Right? Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, but people that that'll be a battle. But but um, I'm going to stick with it. If I'm a luddite, so be it. What do you think the difference between just a Catholic school, maybe different, another religious order, or just diocesan? What is the difference between that and a Jesuit school? You've been through a couple of Jesuit schools now, and you teach at one now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is so definitive or distinct about a Jesuit school? Well, this should be held to account, or held to account, the Jesuits uh, should be. Really, all, anybody who has a charism that they proclaim should be held to account, I think. So what do the Jesuits do well? Well, they, um, they're in the cities. They take scholarship seriously. They take uh, a faith that does justice seriously, and they fund it. So, you know, Jesuits can be criticized in a thousand different ways, being Jesuitical, <laughs> or, you know, the, the old French Jansenist arguments, you know, uh, always kind of being relativist. You know, the classic Jesuit ethos or, or uh, motto is like, you know, you uh, they come in their door and they leave by your door so but you know what that doesn't have to be see that's that's all ignatius ignatius is so vain but you know what did, what did saint ignatius do he's like well i can take my vanity and and ask for a prayer of conversion to, to for the greater glory of god so 
you use you swim in the muddy water and you reorient all of your human skills and talents and you order it towards something you know in a practical sense so you work in work with the world the way it is but but you work for it so that the poor benefit or that the marginalized or that those who don't have an education so i'm all into that and they and that loyola we do it very well uh, i'm really really actually very proud to be part of it and uh, i've seen it in action a lot of great people do a lot of great things so Maybe I drink the Kool-Aid, but I'll, I'm also a fan of, you know, Carmelite spirituality. I'm a fan of the CSJ, the, where the Carmelite sisters, that spirituality is, is a roll-up-your-sleeve spirituality. Mm-hmm. Get to work. I'm a fan of the Christian Brothers spirituality. Dominicans I have a great regard for. I do like the Jesuit approach, and, I, and Loyola Chicago is doing a good job. Wow. I think you nailed that one. That was, yeah. that's, that's great. <laughs> ah, ring mean, the bell, America. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be here all week. One of the, one of the questions we're interested uh, at Daily Theology what does your day to day look like, and what are what are some things that help you kind of to master your craft? Wow, what time is it now? I got about ten minutes. Yeah, we're so good. so actually, as we're talking about this, <laughs> so good. So this talking about very good question to ask. Yeah, it's kind of you know this is practical theology, I guess. No, uh, the, the, my family's the great gift of my life. Certainly, you know, I, we had our first child when I was doing my dissertation, and there's pictures of Caroline on my lap. It's so dear. But families have to navigate these things. It's not easy. So we're always having to you know plan everything and and uh and we always have you're always just having to kind of you know you the money you kind of earn you know you have to uh my my wife's also in education uh margie she's uh, a, a director of curriculum just over here at the schools of the sacred heart and so great. she's uh yeah it's great wonderful and so we have to say we, we so we both work and so we have to figure everything out and so i want to you know it's great to have a life partner a spouse a, your wife your husband that you kind of have the same theory of the good life theory of what work is and theory of gratitude for the gift and so so having a significant other is very very important yeah it really is i mean people doing on their own too god bless them uh, but it helps to have a a a partner and it helps to have you know a practical sense and you just you just you kind of get into it and you find your rhythm but uh but the blessings are, are 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 too beautiful to even describe when do you find the best time to write is for you? Yeah, I really don't do uh, – well, I, I actually have been writing. I've been writing shorter stuff. I I have some big plans for longer stuff, and I just can't get to it. So, you know, even that the, that, that book thing with the publisher, that was maybe interrupted by some all-too-practical concerns, to be honest. That would be part of it. haven't thought about it that way. But you do. You need time. And so if you take the time, how do you do it? Well, well maybe what, maybe they're at school. Maybe you know you have you have the odd day off. Right. Does that when I'm saying when when do you find? Well, I find yeah, I find usually when I when, like when there's like a Christmas break, you know, I'll 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 write. Okay. Yeah, you know, and or in the summer if I you have some projects, I'll write. So I don't you don't ever, you don't ever, you don't stop working. The great myth about uh, working in higher education or being a teacher for that matter is that you take the summers off. I mean, you don't. You don't any good teacher is working on the curriculum or is working another job. You get to breathe. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, yeah. You get to really think about, well, how did I do this? Yeah. And then what do I want to move forward? Right. With? Right. The rhythms are different and I'm all for that, but, but you do, you just work in a different way. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So taking, taking advantage of the time that you have when you're not at full steam, when you're not in the classroom. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in that way, it's really complimentary and I love that. And I love teaching. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's my first gift, I think. But then you stop kind of doing that and you kind of get the other muscle going. One final question before we move to our quick rapid fire All right. five questions. One, one final question. Yeah. Any advice you have for maybe someone in graduate school, someone who just graduated and they're kind of 
finding their way, maybe through teaching or through research. You know, you've been at this for a while now. What is something that you would, uh, if you could give some wisdom to anyone out there who who maybe is like a little worried about their future? I, th- I think uh, you can trust the data. I don't mean the data. Well, in one sense, the data can be trusted. In a sense, who knows? But, you know, people, you know, the, the baby boomers just becomes a demographical question. They have been holding jobs. God bless them. Right. And many of them are starting to retire. Uh, some are holding on for lots of good reasons and lots of reasons aren't so good. I think spots are opening up now, so so keep the faith. But then will these spots be renewed? You know, is there going to be – are the studies in the humanities or studies in the- theology and, and, and allied fields, are they going to be held up as important in a world that's pressured t- moving towards STEM as the kind of um, default epistemology, to, to, to be frank? So I, I would think, you know what, don't worry about that. I think it's going to settle. I think this set of, this approach to life, this approach to scholarship is, is, isn't really going to go anywhere. It might evolve a little bit. So I say keep the faith. Keep the faith on that and, and trust your own inner voice. You know, the reason why you got into it and the, and the things that you have to offer, I don't think you can go wrong. You know, your, your motives are, again, like in a, in a faith statement, you know, I, God makes use of this. There's, you know, everything is ordered toward toward cultivating the the the, the kingdom of God. You know, right? Yeah. I think that's great advice yeah. for for any yeah. for most things in life is is, tr- is yeah. trying to have faith in your inner voice and, and following and knowing what you're what you're doing is worth your time. I agree. Yeah. So. Well said. All right. So rapid fire questions. This is just a little less serious, and you can answer any right. way you which you can. <laughs> so our first question: favorite or least favorite liturgical song. <laughs> I don't like that song. Rain down. Rain. I don't like you know. I like a lot of the Vatican II, St. Louis Jesuit stuff. I like I like a, I like Gift of Finest Weed a lot. That's one of my favorite ones. The rain down. Uh, no. I don't like the rain down so That's much. Great. Yeah, I like uh, I like I like in a kind of a, a way like I like kitsch. I like I am the bread of life. Do 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 do. It's just a jaunty rhythm, uh, but I do like a lot of the older uh, bits too. I have a special place in my heart for the polyphony of. Palestrina to be kind of fatuous about it, or you know whatever the word is for it. But I do, I do love all the chant. I love, um, you know, I love the high liturgical music quite a lot. Yeah. Great. I like, st- I like different styles. Yeah, as most of us. right? Yeah. Hello. What's your? So th- this is a new question. What's your guilty food pleasure? Like, what is something that you're like? Maybe if you're down, or maybe if you're just like, I love this, and you, <laughs> I say guilty because you probably it's probably bad for you. Yeah. Well, I'm convinced that heaven is a deli. I love the delicatessen. <laughs> I can spend hours on the delicatessen. Uh, yeah. I, I just I don't know if that's guilty, but like you know, if it, along kind of the lines of like, I like potato chips pretty well. You know, <laughs> I like gourmet potato chips a lot, but then I love deli food just more than anything. Right. Yeah. I, that makes yeah. both of us. Yeah. <laughs> what profession would you have attempted or like to attempt if you didn't choose uh, academia? Being a rock and roll star, a profession. I mean, if it's, a, I guess we have to choose like dream profession, practical. You, I, um, that rock and roll sounds great. I mean, I watched the Brady Bunch as a kid growing up. I thought I was going to be an architect, you know, for many years. But then I thought I'd be a, you know, a lawyer. But uh, law school, right? Yeah, yeah, law school. But I don't know. I've always been intrigued by what I don't even know. I like um, maybe a chef. Okay. Yeah, maybe a chef. I think that's that's somewhat intriguing. Uh, but I do like uh, being in entertainment. 
I think I grew up in Southern California. A lot of our neighbors went into kind of Hollywood stuff and they're made a career out of it. And lots of different from like holding the boom, you know, to being a gaffer. <laughs> Some people actually are producers. I mean, that's an intriguing business, but that's also it's also crazy. So right. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> All right. What team are you on? Team bow tie or team necktie? Oh, golly. I'm on team necktie. I'm too old for the bow tie. Oh, man, you have to be a certain age. Oh, that's a no, I don't know. I, I think it's just part of this kind of new hipster thing that I can't get. <laughs> I'm a Gen Xer, man. Come on. Oh, man. The shot's fired. I wear like, like a V-neck T-shirt. You know? <laughs> yeah. Final question. All We've right. talked a lot about your life and All a lot right. about your theology, which has been fantastic. What should the title of your biography be? Oh, let's see here. Especially, It's great because you're a literature person, too. So yeah. This is good. Yeah. The plot thickens. The Mike Murphy story. There you go. Fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you, America. Uh, well, I, hopefully we, we didn't spend too much of your time. You're not running late. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been Thanks. Great. Thanks, Mike Avery. You're a gentleman, and I really appreciate your being here. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> the Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 